This is a podcast from the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law at UNSW Sydney. For more information, go to www.caldorcentre.unsw.edu.au. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Jane McAdam, and I'm the director of the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law at the University of New South Wales. The impetus for our discussion is, of course, Om Jungle's book, Bhutan to Blacktown, written with Walkley Award-winning journalist James Button. The book tells Om's remarkable story, his journey from a remote village to a senior position in the Bhutanese civil service, to life as a human rights activist in Nepal, and eventually to his work as a community leader in Blacktown. Om arrived in Australia as a student in 1998, before being granted a a refugee visa, given the Bhutanese government's persecution of ethnic Nepalese of Southern Bhutan. As inaugural president of the Association of Bhutanese in Australia, he played a crucial role in settling more than 5,000 Bhutanese refugees, which was one of the most successful refugee initiatives in Australia's history. Prior to coming to Australia, he was a senior civil servant in Bhutan's Department of Telecommunications. And then while a refugee in Nepal, General Secretary of the Human Rights Organization of Bhutan and co-editor of the Bhutan Review. In Australia, he worked for 10 years as a business analyst at Telstra. And today sits on the New South Wales Ministry of Health Advisory Panel, the New South Wales Police Multicultural Advisory Council and the Blacktown Multicultural Advisory Committee. He also runs Om Jungle Consulting. Om's book is a gripping account of his determination, resilience, optimism, and humanity. It's both a remarkable story of individual achievement and a considered reflection on the broader policies and practices that shape refugees' experiences. Om's deep and abiding commitment to his community, helped thousands of Bhutanese people find safety in Australia, which in his own words, is a home, a home for all of us. I first met Om in 1999, about a year after his arrival in Australia. We lost touch over the years, but reconnected again in 2017. And I was absolutely thrilled to see him again and to learn about everything he'd achieved in that period. Om would particularly like to acknowledge a number of people in the audience this evening. Joseph Laposta, CEO of Multicultural New South Wales. Anthony Cook, Assistant Commissioner, New South Wales Police, representing the Commissioner. Anthony Boyd, CEO of Fraser's Property Australia. Fiona Clark, Director of the Department of Social Services. Associate Professor Dr Om Jungle. Paul Power, the CEO of the Refugee Council of Australia and Adrian Edwards, UNHCR's Regional Representative for Australia in the Pacific. Om will be joined in conversation this evening with Violet Rumeliotis AM, who is the CEO of Settlement Services International. Violet is a social entrepreneur who champions the strengths, the strengths of our diverse communities. She's a member of the Order of Australia, a former Telstra Australia Businesswoman of the Year, one of the Australian Financial Review's top 100 women of influence, 
InStyle Magazine Community Champion. And she was awarded the title of Community Fellow for, by Western Sydney University for outstanding service to the community. Violet sits on the board. Sorry about this. <laughs> this is the problem with not having the lectern. <laughs> Violet sits, thank you, sits on the board of the Australian Council of Social Service, the New South Wales Domestic and Family Violence and Sexual Assault Council, and the New South Wales Aging and Disability Commission Advisory Board as well as the New South Wales Government's joint, uh, joint Partnership Working Group overseeing refugee resettlement. And that's just a selection of her appointments. So it promises to be a fascinating discussion this evening, traversing a wide range of issues. We're going to have a conversation for about 40 minutes and then I'll invite questions from the audience. So let's kick it off. I can turn the page. I'm <laughs> happy <you>. with that. <laughs> Thank you. Not just an author, but a page turner as well. <laughs> so um, there's a really powerful moment in the early stages of your book or pages of your book where you sum up by saying, I lost my possessions, my salary, my status, my career, my country. And in that fall, I gained everything. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about this journey of profound loss and gain and how it's impacted your work. Thank you. Thank you so much, Jen. What an honor to be sitting here with you and having this conversation and with you, Val. It's, you know, it's really my honor. Um, actually, I was a very lonely person, you know, seeking asylum in this country and very scared to go out, you know, because, you know, you're still almost nobody and during that time if somebody cares for you it, it stays in your heart and it was in Marrickville you know Jane and Ben knocked the door <laughs> and visited me so thank you so much Jane it has always stayed with me and it will always stay with me forever thank you well to talk about the loss I think it's not very exciting so I might start with something <laughs> a little more you know uh, please, pleasant, <laughs> a little more pleasant. <laughs> well, uh, after I finished my year 12 in Bhutan, Bhutan didn't have any uh, institutions for higher studies, so I had to go with, you know, to other countries. I went, got a scholarship, went to Bangladesh, did my engineering, and then came back to Bhutan. And those days, like everybody with a degree could get a job in the government, so I had a number of choices, and I picked up the Department of Telecommunications because I was told that that's the worst department <laughs> in the country. Uh, I thought if it's the worst department, I'm sure I'll be able to do something. <laughs> so I joined the department. And uh, uh, after nine months of uh, internship, I was made the, you know, I was given the responsibility to manage the uh, capital city Thimpu's telecommunications network. And it sounds really big to manage the capital city's telecommunication network. But we had a, you know, total telephone line capacity was 1,200 lines. And out of that, about 50% of the lines would work at any given point in time. So, so I was responsible for this network. And uh, unlike the government policy, you know, the telecom network was non-discriminatory. It would even impact the king's phone. 
and the king's <laughs> phone would go faulty and I would get call and have to go and you know fix the phone. But one day I got a fairly strange call in the, from the palace. It said, uh, um, you know, come here, you need to, uh, there's a new washing machine, you need to install it. So the palace had ordered a new washing machine and because I'm an engineer, they thought that an engineer would do that. And, you know, I really panicked because, you know, <laughs> what will happen now? So I went to the next door, knocked my friend's door and said, Tinley, I need help here, you know, and Tinley was my colleague and a very practical person, unlike me, you know, I'm more theory than practice. He carried a tool bag and he also studied in Australia for his engineering and he was a very practical man. And after, you know, going for a while, he, he picked up the thing, a toolbox and we went to the palace and within no time, he got the machine working. So perhaps Tinley saved my life, as a job actually. <laughs> And we got the machine working and, you know, we came back. And since then, I think like, you know, Tinley and I worked on a number of initiatives. And Tinley Doji, I call him the architect of modern telecommunications in Bhutan. With him, I had the pleasure of he being a mentor for me and, a, you know, more of a guru for me. We worked together and did a lot of things for Bhutan Telecom. And for the first time in the history of Bhutan Telecom, we were able to introduce the first international exchange and a satellite earth station so we could pick up the phone and make a phone call to Australia for the first time without going by other countries. So it was quite historic and I was, you know, I feel proud of those moments. It was 29th of March, 1990. So we did a lot of things. Uh, and then I, at the age of 29, I was made the head of planning and development division in Bhutan Telecom. I used to travel to the world, like, you know, representing the government in different international forums, et cetera. And that, that was from my career perspective. I also had a beautiful family and I sort of married the love of my life. Um, and we also had a you know, beautiful daughter and life was just beautiful. And almost overnight, all that vanished. When I became a refugee, uh, when I did flee my country and became a refugee, everything vanished overnight. And when I became a refugee, I thought I lost everything. But I realized that you know I hadn't really lost the capacity to love and care, care for each other. And I also realized that you cannot do anything. You know, you cannot really control what happens to you in life. But I realized that we could really respond the way we want to respond. And we can actually respond with love and compassion. We don't have to get angry and, you know, anger and hatred. You know, a lot of people respond with anger and hatred. And then what it does is it impacts you more than anybody else. And as the Dalai Lama says, you know, anger and hatred is like carrying a hot charcoal in your hand. And what it does before you throw it to your enemy, it burns your hand. So uh, that's what I learned. As a refugee, I also learned that I had to get things done, not through my position or my title. I had to get things done through my relationships, you know, through you know, um, my work with other people, through you know, making those relationships stronger, through you know, uh, various other means, not by your position and perks. And those learnings have really shaped my life moving forward.
Well, I did say at the outset that this is an optimistic account, <laughs> and you can absolutely <laughs> see that because not everyone, I think, would frame such an experience in in the same way. Violet, I'll turn to you. Um, one of the things that I learned from reading the book is that you and Om have had several points of contact over the years. So when did you first meet Om and what's it been like to work with him? Yeah, well, I gave you some thought about my relationship with Om. I mean, having read the book, it was quite an experience, actually. It was a beautiful experience. And I thank you very much, Om, you know, for sharing that uh, amazing story. You're a great storyteller. Um, but the truth is that Om is really the sort of person that you feel that you've known forever. Uh, there's just something about about you on, and um, I reflected on that. But it's probably a decade, probably a decade that we would have uh, worked together. And I I know on with his multiple hats. The first, of course, uh, engagement and contact was uh, your community refugee hat um, in multiple sort of fora, and then of course uh, the work that you did. Um, on the SSI board, and I know that uh, your work that you've done with the Sidwest board and MTC as well. Um, but I guess we work very well together because I do believe we have a shared understanding of uh, the importance of having the community, the heart of the community in, in everything that we do. And I think that's always brought us an, an alignment. Um, on the SSI board, I can tell you he is a real engineer. He's a detailer. He always uh, finds... Uh, uh, grammatical and editing in the minutes, so very thorough, but also a, a, a very uh, a, a, a wonderful board member, understanding the role of a board director and uh, very astute on governance. So uh, we benefited greatly in, in, that, in that context. But he didn't just, uh, you know, relax uh, to work only on uh, the board work and the governance. He also threw himself into the community-led initiatives that SSI uh, ran. Uh, one was our refugee scholarships, uh, which we now um, run with uh, Alliant, who contributes towards it. But Om was on the on the committee and very active, spent many, many hours uh, going through the applications and having the very uh, hard job that no one really wanted of, uh, with two other very brave board members uh, agreeing, deciding on who would get uh, scholarships when many would miss out, so the, who would be the most deserving. Um, and also, we had many conversations on how could SSI uh, really contribute towards building the capacity of community, you know, community, community leaders and community. And the Community Innovation Fund was really yeah. a, a brainchild of the two of us, yeah. which was really to look at applying, um, uh, going to community, particularly in, in Western and Southwest Sydney, uh, where we saw many leaders who had a natural affinity to leadership, and they did it because they loved what they were doing. They, built, they really believed in the strengths of their community, and they wanted to be able to contribute in some way. But many were, they had no legal entity, they, they had no governance structures to be able to apply. And so, um, you threw yourself into that work, and uh, supporting um, uh, organisations to apply, uh, and then going through the applications and then, you know, from beginning to end when we saw the results of some of those projects which were outstanding. And really uh, seeing people who did apply and the, the work that they did in that Community Innovation Fund, we really showed people who really um, had a deep belief in the strengths of their community. And that, for me, really personifies you on. 
someone, it's not about acknowledgement, personal acknowledgement, but it really is about um, the person who wants to offer to the people around him and, the, and to communities. Um, really demonstrate what, demonstrating the importance of wanting to achieve for, for community and for the greater good. Um, and I think that that's what you, you stand for and personify on. And it shows also the value when you work collaboratively and that each one works to the strength, our own strengths. And I think that it's very brave of you to put aside that $100,000 as this you know, innovation fund and then try and explore something new. So I think it was very brave on you to do that as well, to convince the board to, you know. Thank you. I yeah. think in many ways we've got yeah. an obligation yeah. you know, to be able to, to contribute in some very small way. Mm. Um, as I've mentioned, your book portrays an amazing personal story, a story of, of love, of loss, of hope and strength. But it's also a powerful provocation of the role that refugees can and should play in protection responses. In the book, you write, no one who has not been a refugee can understand the resilience that is born out of that life. How do you think that ideas of vulnerability and of resilience influence our responses to refugees? And do approaches to refugee protection need reform in order to better address these dynamics? Mm -hmm. Perhaps I can sort of share, uh, start by sharing how we responded when we became refugees in Nepal. Now, uh, before UNHCR or any other organized assistance came into the camp, like it, or for refugees, you know, people stepped up. And it was a matter of survival. So, you know, people stepped up and started, you know, uh, looking for help, going around collecting food and distributing back to refugees. There were doctors and nurses who started looking after the elderly, the sick, and the you know, children. And there were others who were sort of documenting the refugees with a very thorough waiting process to ensure that you know, like, uh, nobody else gets into the you know, refugee cohort. And there were others like you know, building the huts, masons, carpenters, etc. And once people had enough food to eat, they were very desperately wanting their children to go to mm -hmm. school, but we didn't have schools. And those conversations led to some frustrated teachers, like who were teachers back in Bhutan, to sort of say, hey, it's hot here, but I'll run my class under that tree. And somebody else said, I'll run my class under that tree. So we started the tree schools. And tree schools are schools under trees. A lot of people ask me, what are tree schools? There's <laughs> <laughs> the schools we get children to be under that tree because it's so hot, they need some shade. So, and uh, we, that's how we started. And I really want to acknowledge and thank those teachers, vision of those teachers. Not, it, it wasn't so much about themselves, but they had a vision for you know, not for them, but their children or grandchildren. Like, you know, they want the future generations to have education. So uh, today we talk about a settlement, you know, successful settlement of Putin's refugees. And it was because of those teachers who had that vision to teach them under trees. And a couple of weeks ago, somebody visited me and uh, he had studied under the trees and now, you know, a practicing doctor. So we have got doctors and engineers and very successful people you know, who studied under trees and gone on to do many things. So I think th that was one of the 
key thing that really drove you know the practice of refugee settlement. Um, and I think the key thing was like all the refugees leaders who were working, taking lead in you know managing the camps. Once UNHCR and the international agencies came in, we didn't really step back. Like they work collaboratively. So UNHCR or Caritas or LWS, they involve and engage the community leaders to run the camps, so to run the schools and to run the hospitals. So they were embedded within the system so that it wasn't us versus them, but it was all working together towards a common sort of goal. So based on our experience, I think it's about focusing on the resilience of the refugees themselves who have gone through extreme hardships and how do we nurture that and help them to flourish rather than looking at the, what do you call it, uh, the, the, the vulnerability. It's simply if we just focus on resilience and you know, nurture that, you are able to address the vulnerability of people as well. So that's what we have really seen in the camps in Nepal. Now, universally, when we talk about refugee, it evokes a sense of sympathy, and which is really helpful in the initial period where people need help to survive. But then it can also become a sort of a barrier sometimes to know and you know, to dig further the strengths and passion people do bring in as well. So we need to be really careful about you know, helping people and not making people dependent. So that's something I think we've found in terms of you know, like refugee settlement. So over the years, I've come up with some you know, guiding principles. So I've sort of attempted to do this, and Violet and I also had a lot of discussion when I got this Westpac fellowship. You know, a lot of people challenged me, and oh, why don't you go and find some you know, best practice refugee settlement? After a year of study, I sort of came back with some guiding principles. And those guiding principles for me are, one, redefining refugees with their strengths. You know, if we did, you know, define refugees with strengths, it's, it's very you know, uh, motivating and more future-looking rather than dwelling on the sufferings, which is a little more backward-looking. So it, it can be very empowering if we redefine refugees with their strengths. And secondly, taking that strength-based holistic approach to refugee settlement. Uh, thirdly, it's about utilizing the lived experience in that embedding in that settlement process and how do you utilize the lived experience of people that you're helping. And fourthly, it's about collaboration again. Like, you know, there's the need for a service provider to provide services. But then there's this education institution. So there is this people with lived experience who can put, put provide input. So there is this taking that collaborative approach would definitely lead to successful, you know, better outcomes than if it's just one or the other. And finally, what I found is like we tend to focus more on the physical aspects, but it's really important to recognize that there is the other element, the mental aspect, which I call physical or the non-physical, you know. Uh, aspect, you know, the mental aspect is really important as well. When refugees come to a new country, a lot of people can't get over with what they've lost. So how do we together, you know, as people with lived experience or people who have gone through that experience, 
help them to acknowledge what has happened. Unless we are able to acknowledge what has happened, we cannot move forward. So the starting point is for us to be able to acknowledge what has happened, and then people are able to move forward. So I sort of operate within those guiding principles, which has really helped me too. And by globally, I think by showcasing the strengths and passions refugees bring into this into the country of settlement, or generally, you know, what refugees bring in, I think we can change the debate on you know refugees from you know sharing the burden to sharing the opportunity globally. Yeah. Violet, how has Settlement Services International sought to incorporate the expertise and skills of refugees in its approaches to supporting newcomers to Australia? And I wonder, do you think there's been a, a big shift in thinking on this issue um, at your own organisation, but also, um, you know, more generally, since SSI was founded in 2000? Okay. Well, um, I think that SSI works hand-in-hand, -hand actually, with diaspora communities and community leaders. It's a significant part of the work that we do, and we wouldn't have the success that we've had um, in refugee resettlement without... That, that partnership and civil society organisations generally is critical. Um, so in the last you know year or so, we've had something like uh, 180 community engagements and many thousands of different uh, people from different backgrounds attending uh, those fora and a way to network and engage. But if you look at uh, our workforce, exercise workforce, we're not just working with diaspora communities, but actually an extension of it. So 71% of our workforce uh, born overseas, 76 different countries represented, uh, and a significant proportion are refugees. And indeed, um, our, we, we run a consortium with a lead organisation of the New South Wales Settlement Partnership a Consortium, where some of our partners are here tonight. And uh, the program manager, the lead, is a person uh, who came as a refugee as a, as a very young, as a young boy. Uh, and we have a number of staff who are community leaders, so they wear many hats, you know, they might be different roles in this society, but also very active uh, in their communities. And we've been able to look at uh, uh, position descriptions to align their passion and interests, you know, with that work so that they wouldn't always have to take the annual leave to do that work. And a great example is Najiba Wazifaros, who um, works at SSI and started as a case manager in, in HSP, in the humanitarian program, uh, and now has founded an international uh, organisation, APNOR, for women, and, um, and is very well regarded and a great advocate uh, for refugee-led organisations. Has a support of Refugee Council and Amnesty, uh, wonderful colleagues who really support that work. So really recognising uh, those talents and allowing people to come to work and be, you know, their full self and what authentic selves about what they can do. Um, and I guess we uh, also really value, uh, in many of our programs, it's really important, for example, when people arrive at the airport, that they see faces that are familiar and languages that they speak. And so that from the moment they arrive, they feel welcomed. And that's very powerful. And within... An hour or two, they might be immersed in a community where they see familiarity, and that's, that's very important about where they're living, what they're doing. Um, we're also very active in supporting uh, the establishment of complementary pathways to resettlement because we know that people with lived experience, that's a very important area where they can, can contribute. And uh, Paul is here, you know, 2017, we've gone to Canada and did a study tour on uh, their community sponsorship program. We knew that that's something that 
would be a very viable uh, complementary uh, pathway here in Australia. And we see today, um, I think, uh, very recently, the first families under the CRISP pilot, you know, uh, our own version of it here in Australia arrived, where ordinary Australians are supporting uh, people to arrive and, and uh, live a life here in Australia. And also, SSI's played a critical role in, um, in I think, well, we signed uh, labour, labour mobility programs, another very important area we'd like to see more of, uh, and we're certainly talking to government about that. So SSI was the first refugee resettlement organisation that actually signed an agreement with a network on refugee labour mobility, which actually advises the global network, instituting them in how we can do that better as receiving countries, that global task force. And I guess at a local level, programs like Beyond Boundaries, we've been great fans of their work and work very closely with John Cameron and the team there. And, you know, we, we were very thrilled when they were able to sign with the Australian government their skilled labour agreement pilot, which uh, would allow 200 displaced people to, you know, find work and uh, start routes in, in Australia. So many different ways of trying to engage and bring that in. And to your question, um, Jane, around, sorry, whether um, we've shifted our thinking, um, no, I don't think that SSI shifted its thinking in relation to refugee-led. Uh, in many ways, um, we've understood the importance of service delivery and the importance of having um, the lived experience uh, reflected in that. And the reason why SSI was established in 2000 was because there had been a shift in government policy where we saw the, the privatisation of human services, we saw employment services privatised, and we knew human services would be the next cab off the rank. And it was about um, being able to um, protect community organisations, uh, civil organisations, civil society organisations that have been doing the work in settlement for a very long time. And we've been able to look at ways of developing models where we felt were growing the pie for the sector and power with, so working with community and allowing small organisations, uh, but very expert and talented organisations to do the work that they do best on the ground and, uh, and looking at models like uh, our consortium where the lead could do all of the governance, ensure there's a consistency and approach around service delivery. So we, we very much, I think, um, have looked at uh, ensuring that, you know, we can collaborate with diaspora organisations and ensure that um, we can contribute towards their success and that they contribute towards our success at the end of the day you know, having um, people arriving and feeling welcomed and meeting their potential as soon as possible, the strength-based, so trauma-informed, strength-based and person-centred. So it's not about the program uh, and you tick a box. It is actually about what can we do to support you and your family to meet your aspirations so that you can live the life that you want uh, in Australia. Plus, you should mention the IGNITE program. You didn't mention Well, IGNITE is, yeah. That's a good, again... Tapping yeah. onto people's you know, entrepreneurship. Exactly. Like well, that. you know, when we do triage, and you say, well, what did you do, you know, as you would triage newly arrived uh, refugees? And what did you do um, before you arrived in Australia? I would, we would say 30 or 40% spoke about running businesses. Mm. Some are very small businesses, but, you know, they, they were entrepreneurial and they had to be uh, to make a living. And, 
And many said, and we said, would would you like to try something here, a business? And uh, great numbers said, yeah, we'll give it a go. And some said, I don't want to do anything like I was doing before. I'd like something different. And others wanted um, what what they were expert in. And over the years, this program, it was still funded, but we really believed in it. Uh, 1,200 people have gone through it, refugees, and there'd be four or 500 businesses that have started. Some are just sole traders, very small. Uh, and others, you know, large, very successful, employing 20, 30, 40 people and giving back to taxpayers. But it's about people having agency and people, even if their English is not good. Uh, I always remember this young woman from Iraq. Her English was very poor, but she started up. She was a very talented leather maker and she made bags and she sold them at Maripool uh, markets and then went online and improved her English. And she was proud that she was, you know, uh, supporting herself. Yeah, so, so many great stories. And I think we're talking about importing things from Canada because they do better. That's what people would say, but we've also exported yeah, the that Canadian to Canada. Yeah, the Canadian Department of Immigration bought the, yeah. the, um, yeah, the IP yeah. and it's running in Canada. We're very proud of that, so, yeah, yeah, in Vancouver. We have, in, in fact, exported a few things. Like, you know, one time we were at that conference, a Metropolis conference in Canada, and, like, some of the Canadians were saying, don't tell that, Aussies don't like it. Is that what? Because they were saying asylum seekers. And we tell people, you know, they are people seeking asylum. And that's yeah. the language we use in, from Australia. And that's what they heard from all the Australian delegations. So they said, oh, the Aussies don't like calling asylum seekers. So they changed their language as well. So we start with something. And that's what we have exported to Canada as well. Yeah. <laughs> that's true. Yeah. Language is important. But that's it. It's, it's how, I mean, so often we hear of the negative practices being copied around the world, but there are so many good practices and they're the ones that we actually would like to see people emulating. Um, for many years, refugees have rallied together and created initiatives and organisations to support their own communities as well as others. But these roles of support are generally not well understood, they're not well supported, and they haven't received much attention. And I think COVID was for many the kind of light bulb moment when there was recognition because international staff were recalled that actually there are these amazing groups of people, refugees, who are helping their own communities. And it wasn't as though COVID started that. It, it really just was the moment that shone a spotlight on it. So I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about your experiences working with community-based refugee-led organisations both here and in Nepal, um, and, and what role do you think governments and other service providers play in supporting such initiatives? Uh, thank you, Jen. When I became refugee, I quickly realised the relevance or, in some senses, irrelevance of your degree and qualifications in a as a telecom engineer, you know, like uh, I went to the camps and I was totally unemployable. My skills were not at all required. I couldn't do anything in the camps. We required masons, carpenters, you know, people who could build a hut. And there's nothing I could do in the camps. You know, I was totally useless. So people said, Om, you can talk. Go to Kathmandu and do some advocacy work. <laughs> so uh, for all practical Lost purposes. Installing washing machines. <laughs> <laughs> so for all practical purposes, I became a diplomat in Kathmandu, you know, talking to embassies and international agencies and organizations and at times traveling overseas, you know, to lobby for the, you know, human rights work that I was doing. I think uh, what we found was like 
in the camps, there was this social organizations, you know, women's association, you know, working with women and trying to empower women. We had Oxfam coming in and doing some, you know, income generating programs and projects. And there were various organizations, international organizations coming in, but we had those social organizations in the camp, which were almost embedded, working together hand in hand. So empowerment, community capacity building was the key focus, you know, community capacity building and sustainability was built into everything we did, even in refugee camp like that, and it's possible. Because if we were building a hut, we were already thinking, when can we dismantle those huts? So we had to build in, you know, community capacity building. We don't want to make people dependent. It has to, you know, incorporate some community capacity building and then also think about the sustainability of what you're trying to do. So even in a refugee camp, that, that's what we did. So here, from day one, we started sort of encouraging people to sort of, you know, involve themselves, you know, like, if I go to the airport to receive someone together with the service provider, then they see a familiar face. And somebody from your own village or somebody who can talk your language, it helps. So it's complementing the work of service providers. We work very collaboratively and together with that. And then from if I did that, somebody else who has been received at the airport would go and receive somebody else at the airport. So we sort of really encourage that volunteering concept. And one, what it did is, you know, help people to get some local experience, to look, you know, familiarize themselves with, you know, what's going on in the country and how they can be working in the future. And two, you know, it, to get them a sense of, you know, contributing back into the community. So from day one, we had built in this system into our settlement program. And perhaps I can give you a couple of examples, but very quickly, I think, uh, you know, we had a crazy idea of doing a youth festival back in 2014. And we had a lot of conversation within the community and, you know, we built a big sort of budget trend like $90,000 to $100,000 because we we're trying to bring 250 people from across the country and organize a youth festival. And after several discussions out of frustration, like, you know, we're saying, somebody said, you know, what was the major cost? And accommodation was a major cost. and one guy got up and said, you know, like, I could accommodate 10 people in my hut in the refugee camp. I can easily accommodate 10 or 20 people in my house now. I've got a two-bedroom house or a three-bedroom house. So that light bulb moment for us, and we said, oh, actually, we could do that. So we accommodated 250 people in our own homes, and half the cost was gone. But with that vision, again, we wanted to work in partnership with other organizations. So with that vision, I still remember going to Violet and, you know, selling this vision of organizing this youth festival and Violet got so excited, oh, I'll get the marketing team to work with you, this team to work with you, and then next day she realizes that, oh, actually, they were already engaged with some major projects. So Violet says, can I give you some money? I said, oh, that's fine as well. So, <laughs> and then, okay. Okay, so, and similarly, I went to CMRC and Mensa, are you here? Ah, okay, all right. So we had the same conversation. Now realize, yeah, as well, like you know, we had that conversation, and Melissa says the same thing. It was a bit of money, and uh, Alpha couldn't make it today, but Clement is here. Uh, Alpha says, "Oh, we've got a van. You take it." You know, and various other things, and um, it starts. You know, um, Yasmina says, "Oh, you know, we can do all the printing." Mm. So we just mobilize everyone to work on this thing of vision and made that happen. So instead of costing us $90,000, it cost us $19,700. Uh, 
and then half of that, more than half of that, we raised ourselves, and then other organizations contributed to it. So that's how you know we can make things work you know in a very effective way well at the same time engage communities build that community capacity because now if anybody wants to organize a youth festival or anything like that we've got a whole team built into the community which suman chetri was the lead and now he can organize those kind of functions very easily and very quickly during covid like you know we had a you know leadership forum happening through sidwest when covid hit people are complaining and joseph is gone i think uh, Joseph used to organize ministers' consultations every week, and you know we were panicking. What do we do now? And people in the community also panicked and said, you know, uh, complaining about you know this and that. So after the second conversation, Clement and I and a few others had a chat and said we need to change this conversation. Opusbaizi as well, like he would be, you know, calling people day in and day out and organizing this consultation. And from that complaint conversation, we wanted to move it to what can we do? As community leaders, do we just complain or can we do something? So we had community leaders from what, 20 or 30 different communities. And we said, okay, we need to do something. So if the communication is not right, or if you cannot get communication to your community because it's not translated well or whatever, it's our responsibility. So let's pick up the phone and call 10 people and tell them to call 10 other people and pass on three simple messages. One, follow the lockdown rules. And we have to get that a little deeper because lockdown rules meant you know you could visit your family. It was household, but we had to get it very clear that it was uh, you know, a household, not a family, because our families would mean 50 people. You know? <laughs> so we had to clarify that. Secondly, get vaccinated, and thirdly, get tested. So those three simple messages we could pass on through people people through the languages that people spoke, through people they trusted. So it was so effective. We called this, you know, a door knock. And I think I was at one of the PMAC police commission's meeting. And one of the, you know, I think assistant commissioners almost panicked. Oh, why can you, you cannot do a door knock during COVID. And I quickly said, because a virtual door knock, you know, picking <laughs> up the phone and calling 10 people. So. Through that virtual door knock, I think, and that is one of the contribution. I think I, we can't take the full, you know, uh, uh, what do you call it credit, but I think back, Blacktown became one of the highest vaccinated LGA in the country at one point in time. We were beaten by a few others later, but at one time we were the highest vaccinated country. So through those approaches, how we work collaboratively, because we need, you know, organizations. We can act like an organization, but think like a movement. I think that's how we can work together and create outcomes for the communities. So what you just said reminds me of, um, so we met each other through my partner, Ben, who had volunteered in the uh, Bhutanese refugee camps in Nepal. We subsequently went and studied in the UK alongside the then Crown Prince, now the King of Bhutan. And so refugees still in the camps would send messages via Ben to the Crown Prince can we come home? <laughs> and they'd also send gifts, which I think really took the Crown Prince by surprise when it was his father who essentially was responsible for what was happening. So it just reminded me of that too. You use every channel, every relationship to try yeah. and make engineer change. Um, I'm, I'm just mindful of the, the time and the Fine. fact that we've got um, an audience, no doubt, that would like to ask questions. So perhaps I'll ask each of you just one final mm. question. Um, so, Violet, in the book, Om um, raises a thought 
thought-provoking question, which is how do we nurture the best and cast off the worst of the old world and of the new? So this you know, relates to ideas of integration, multiculturalism and diversity. How does SSI approach these big picture questions and, and what are the principles that underpin your work? We run orientation sessions. It's a very important part of um, our program for newly arrived refugees and humanitarian um, entrants. And we were very honoured, as, as you know, very recently we had uh, the High Commissioner visit uh, our Fairfield office. And uh, he was able to attend with Adrian and, and others. Um, we sat in very quietly, uh, tried not to disrupt too much, an orientation class. And the module that we were looking at was uh, values in Australia. And uh, we sat and listened. And then the High Commissioner uh, was invited to ask any questions. And he asked two questions. Um, the first question is, what are the biggest differences in your, uh, on, in your rights in Australia in comparison to the rights that you had in your country of origin, where you've come from? And many of the um, refugees spoke about their rights around freedom of speech, uh, freedom to work, uh, freedom for education. So, you know, really basic foundational things for us, but they saw them as uh, amazing rights uh, for, for themselves. And then he asked, what right has been the most difficult uh, for you to accept and practice? And a young woman spoke up and said, to drive. That, that's a wonderful right to learn to drive, uh, the freedom that it gave her. But she says, but I can't, it's been so difficult because I can't believe the hard tests that you have here in Australia. <laughs> so it was a, a lighthearted moment. It was lovely. But uh, I, I guess the point is that these orientation programs are about um, an organisation taking responsibility and saying, you know, you know, here are a whole lot of modules around, you know, for example, um, you're rubbish. Here's the red bin, here's the yellow, and, you know, this is what you need to do. The things as important as um, what, is, what is expected uh, of you as a, as a spouse or a person in this country? You know, is it acceptable for physical harm or what? So to that sort of degree. And I think that it is about being able to sort of elevate the best, their culture and the and maintenance of their culture and their, and their beliefs uh, and uh, what's dear to them and family, but also cast off some of the things that may, may not fit in in a country uh, that they've come to. The final question that I wanted to ask, the title of your book, Bhutan to Blacktown, is, is fantastic. And I just wondered what these places mean to you and what you wish for both Bhutan and Blacktown in the future. Very interesting. <laughs> I was uh, stateless for 12 years, and I so much wanted to belong, belong somewhere. Australian citizenship gave me that sense of belonging, and the home in Blacktown not not only gave us a new life, you know, but a real identity. So. I really want to say thank you, Blacktown. Thank you, Australia. Mm -hmm. um, and talking about belonging, you know, I've got Anthony here, the CEO of property, Fraser's Property Australia. And I was really, you know, interested to find that a property developer has a mission to, you know, they exist because you want to create belonging. So people in this room represent, you know, what this book is all about. You know, we sort of need everyone to build our community because at the end of the day, we go home to our families and our families at good as 
our own involvement and our community is as good as our own involvement. So Blacktown really means a lot to me uh, because I've got a home, we've got a family there. Uh, and for me, Blacktown is like we've got people from 188 different countries and we speak 182 languages. I had a dream to work for United Nations when I was a child and I do work for it now because I live in Blacktown. <laughs> it, is, it is more than the United Nations, I think. <laughs> so uh, that's Blacktown for me. For Bhutan, a country where, you know, where I was born, brought up, spent the first 30 years of my life and my parents and grandparents and born, brought up there. And uh, they lost a lot there, but I think we gained much more because as to all please my dad, like, you know, a lot of people would come and say, hey, old man, you lost so much, you know, you had a shop, you had this, you had that, and he would feel bad about it. And I started having this conversation with him, and dad, like, you know, you are the luckiest person in this world, and you say, why? You know, how many people are able to give, donate to a king? Now, he donated all your property, your shop, <laughs> everything to the king. <laughs> and slowly, sort of, he started liking that, you know, line of thinking and, you know, he felt good about it because it was not about losing, but it was giving. So I think uh, a country like that, I have that connection and uh, I would love to go to Lamindara and Chiang Mai, my in-laws, sort of this place, and hopefully one day to Punaka where we, we had a dating hideout there. <laughs> <laughs> The confluence of the river, and we should go there. <laughs> hopefully, we talk about hopefully going there one day, <laughs> if allowed. So hopefully, like you know, we could go there. But what I wish for Bhutan is, I think uh, there's a saying that king can do no wrong. But I also wish that you know uh, the fourth king, King Jing Missing Awang Chuk, like you know, under which uh, this thing happened. I wish that you know he would not leave this world with a big burden because, you know, like uh, having, you know, created this injustice, uh, I want him to offload that, you know, acknowledge what had happened, you know, acknowledge the injustices that had happened to people. And that would offload him and he would, you know, he, he would go a lot more, you know, relieved from the pain he may be suffering. So I wish him all the best. and. I wish the country up, you know, I wish he could start working on that and we can create a prosperous Bhutan again. And, uh, you know, it has been known for coining that happiness, you know, gross national happiness. Mm -hmm. And we hope that is, becomes a reality, not just a you know, talk fest. And for Blacktown, I think, yeah, I see Blacktown, I, I actually have three aspirations for Blacktown. One, you know, as you know, our uh, you know, Noel Pearson says that like, this is a three-story nation, and I still, I also believe strongly believe that we are a three-story nation. You know, you know, starting from the indigenous, oldest indigenous culture, you know, building from that, the you know, British traditions and democratic institutions that built on it, and then now the new multicultural mix that we have now. So. It's, a, it's a, more of a three-story nation that we want to build, Blacktown and the wide Australia. Secondly, we also want to focus on what we have rather than what we are lacking. Uh, even <coughs> if you look at Blacktown, you know, like it's, it's a, uh, as I said, socially, culturally, so rich. 
And we are also a, what, $22 billion economy. We employ, I think, over 100,000 people in the area. And our local economy is bigger than, I think, three times larger than Fiji. Nobody notices that. We always complain about we don't have something. So if you focus on what we have, if you focus on our strengths, I think we have so much to build on. And finally, I think uh, I get a little scared of the identity politics. Uh, Joseph has already left, but uh, it's a matter for multicultural Southers to sort of look at this as well, because uh, I think we really need to start with what's common. And for me, I'm a Blacktown resident first. Uh, and my other background from being a Bhutanese or Nepali-speaking, Nepali ethnicity, being whatever religion, culture we bring in, as to the richness to that, but it's not the starting point. Because if you start on our differences, if you start on our, you know, the culture, our religion, we're starting on our differences. And then we could go parallelly somewhere and not need. And during times of crisis, it could be very dangerous because we found that during COVID, people are asking for vaccination for my community. And what's our community? For me, Blacktown is my community. And whoever is most deserving, whoever is most vulnerable should get a vaccine, not my community, but defined by your ethnicity, our culture, our religion. So I think we need to start with what's common and whatever richness, whatever diversity, whatever differences we have should add to the richness of our culture. So those are my three aspirations for Blacktown and for wider Australia, and hopefully we can create a prosperous Blacktown and a prosperous Australia. Thank you. Thank you, Om. You, you just mentioned Anthony before. Well, I'd just like to point to another Anthony, Prime Minister Anthony Albanese, who <laughs> <laughs> said, what you hold in your hands is a great Australian story. And I think what we've heard tonight is most certainly a great Australian story and one for which we thank you immensely. Thank you.